Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 6, even though I'm going to start out reading a text from John 15. But if you turn your Bibles to Luke 6, we'll be there in a minute. Jesus in the upper room right before being tried and crucified said this to his disciples in John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This command, this I command you, that you love one another. That was right at the end of Jesus' life, his repetitive exhortation to love one another. And not only did Jesus teach this at the very end of his life, he taught this all the way through his ministry. It just happens to be one of the subjects of the Sermon on the Mount that we are studying And when Jesus says love, he's not talking about the love of the world. He's not talking about mere emotion or feeling or passion or infatuation or desire or lust. He is talking about a commitment from the heart to do it as best for another person according to the word of God, regardless of how it makes us feel and regardless of how it makes others feel. Keep that in mind. Love is a commitment to give God glory by behaving towards other people in a way that is best for them according to the scriptures. And see, this is how God loves us. Sometimes he, he does things for us which are very pleasant, but other times he sends trials our way, doesn't he? And they don't feel good, but they're good for us. He loves us. He does what is best for us. And so as Jesus begins to teach, as we have learned in verses 20 through 26, Jesus begins giving four beatitudes or statements of blessing followed by four woes, statements of condemnation. And each of these groups, believers and unbelievers, are characterized by these either beatitudes or woes. And the last beatitude is a very difficult one to live out. The beatitude is, blessed are you who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, being persecuted just comes upon those who live for Christ. We have very little of it in our country, but we still have probably, all of us have probably received some persecution, some censure, some scoffing, some rejection because we are Christians. And it's very difficult to learn to respond correctly when people are mean and hateful and persecute us just because we're doing what is right. And this brings a great temptation when we are persecuted to strike back, to remember we are Americans and we have our rights, and to forget that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom and we have a right first and foremost to obey our heavenly king. And our heavenly king wants us to obey the golden rule. To treat others in the same way that we 
we'd be treated. To love other people in the same way that we would have them love us unconditionally for our good. And so if you have your Bibles, look at verse 36 or look at uh, verse 27 as we read down through verse 36 of Luke 6. Jesus says, verse 27, by say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, whoever hits you on the treat cheek, offer him the other also, whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either, give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back, treat others the same way you want them to treat you, and if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you have respect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful. Just as your father is merciful. So we've looked at verses 27 through 31. Where Jesus gives eight commands. And each of these commands are hyperbolic or exaggerated commands. Where Jesus says, you know, even if they do this incredible thing to you, respond in this way. And he's trying to teach us the proper way to respond to that last beatitude. Blessed are you when men persecute you. And he wants us to get this one down. And so he gives us these eight commands followed by a ninth, which is the overarching golden rule, which tells us to treat others like we want to be treated. In verse 28, Jesus says, bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. In verse 29, Jesus says, we are to be willing to suffer for his sake, not try to hide from suffering. He also says, if by legal means we have our possessions taken away from us because we're Christians, so be it. Accept this with grace. Verse 30, Jesus says, we are to give to the poor. And if those who borrow from us do not repay, we are not to lose our sanctification over it. He didn't give me back my stuff. Finally, in verse 31, we have this golden rule, which is one easy thing to remember so that no matter who's persecuting us and for what reason, because we are living a godly life, we can remind ourselves of how to respond in a loving Christ honoring way. So this morning we want to examine for verses 32 through 36, three more categories of arguments that Jesus gives so that we can know how to live out the golden rule in the face of persecution. And we need to learn these things in order to give God glory and to be a good witness of Christ as we are persecuted. So the first, he gives three probing questions to ask yourself. Remember, Jesus has just given these eight commands, nine if you include the golden rule, which served as illustrations. Now Jesus begins to argue for what he has said by offering these three heart-probing questions. The first one is found in verse 32. Look there. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Now, the word credit is the Greek word charis, the word usually translated grace. If you love those who love you, what grace is that to you? What, what is favor? What, what, how does that manifest God's saving grace in your life? And what is the implied answer? It doesn't. 
It doesn't. What grace, what favor, what credit is there in acting like the heathen who do not know God and who hate God? And the end of the verse explains the implied answer for even sinners love those who love them. That's no big, supernatural, transformed, you know, saving grace type of thing. Second question, verse 33, look there. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? What is the implied answer? It is no credit. It's the same as the first question. There is no credit, no display of saving grace at all. Why? Look at the end of verse 33. For even sinners do the same. Pagans, Satan worshipers do good to each other. That's no display of God's saving grace. Third question, look at verse 34. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? The implied answer, there is no credit. Every bank, every credit union, every credit card company is willing to lend to you in order to receive back with interest. That's no supernatural display of God's saving grace in your life. It's a display of greed, not grace. Jesus argues at the end of verse 34, even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Even sinners will often lend to other sinners and they don't even want interest. They're just lending and they just get back the same amount. So if you did that, that's not even a display of God's saving grace. To act and respond like the world, Jesus is saying, is no witness of God's saving grace in your life. It is no credit to you as being a Christian. Being his follower, being his disciple, being a Christian is being otherworldly. Is being different, holy, distinct from the world. And why do we have to be holy and distinct from the world? Because it gives God glory and it is a very strong witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, when you go out in the world and you start living an otherworldly life, living like Christ, living different from the world, responding to persecution in a gracious way, people look at you and go, now there is a real Christian. You know, if I ever become a Christian, I'm going to become like that person. Because they're not a hypocrite. They're living out what they say they believe. And the question you and I need to ask ourselves is, do I respond correctly to persecution? When I do what is right, do I res- and get persecuted or rejected or lose the promotion or you know get fired or whatever, do I respond with grace, love, kindness, patience, Christ-likeness? Or do I go into some sort of carnal tirade of anger and bitterness because I've lost something that this world has to offer? Jesus wants all of us to be different, holy, separate from the world. But Jesus isn't through. He throws at this topic everything he's got. The nine commands are not enough. The three probing questions are not enough. And so he says, well, let me give you two motivations just in case everything else isn't enough. So we have two motivations. Look at verse 35. Jesus summarizes what was said in the nine commandments, but love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. That's just a summary of what he has just said. And then he gives the first of two motivations. Look at the middle of verse 35 and your reward will be great. Now, just stop there. Your reward will be great. You know, I find it interesting that sometimes people, you know, they come into, you know, my office or whatever, and, you know, they're depressed. 
you know, I, I, yeah, I just, you don't know, I've you know, lost my job and because I shared my faith or, you know, I was doing something and reading my Bible and, you know, these people said bad things or I was teaching the truth and they attacked me or whatever. I like to ask them, so, you know, tell me about it. How, how do you get through with that? I don't know. So so when you get to heaven, are you just going to regret that you live for the Lord and all eternity have this, oh, I shouldn't have been godly. I shouldn't have been persecuted. Well, no. Well, then what are you going to be thinking? I don't know. They have no, they have no concept. They have no concept. They have no motivation. I'm telling you, if being a Christian is just about being persecuted all your life, denying yourself a whole bunch of pleasures, and then dying and regretting it for all eternity, I mean, that's kind of a loser thing. You know, if being a Christian is just about regretting for all eternity that you stood up for Christ and were persecuted and suffered and denied yourself some earthly pleasures, I mean, that's a bummer. But it's not about that. There is a great reward. Rating for every believer. One of the ungodly habits Christians can slip into is to always thinking that this world and its entertainments and its pleasures and its things are the highest form of good that anyone can attain to. Let me ask you, do you long for heaven? Let me ask you, last week, can you think of any time you stopped and thought about heaven? I just pondered heaven. You know, you're at work and things are kind of hectic and at lunchtime you're out there eating your sandwich. You're just thinking, you know, heaven's going to be good. I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm ready to die right now. I want you to know every time I do a funeral, I can't wait to die. Just strike me down. Do you ponder? Do you meditate? Do you wonder and anticipate the incredible joys of heaven? You should. Because your reward is great. I think all of us as witness uh, soldiers coming back from war or POWs have been released and they've been in captivity or these soldiers have been shot at and they've been going through all this trial and, you know, eating military rations and crawling through the dirt and the mud. And, and these people, these guys get off the plane and what do they do? The first thing they do, man, they get down on their hands and knees and they kiss the tarmac. Why? What is the big emotional response? Well, they've been going without food. They've been getting shot at every day. People are trying to blow them up. They're trying to kill them. They've been away from home, away from friends, away from family, away from the great pleasures they enjoyed all while growing up in the United States. And so when they get out of the plane, man, they kiss the tarmac because they love their country. I'm telling you, this should be the response of every believer. As you grow in your relationship with the Lord, you should fall more and more in love with heaven and long for heaven more. As those soldiers are on that plane and they're flying on the way home, they're so excited to just get home. Is that you? Are you so excited to get home? Thomas Watson said, this world is but an inn that we stay in for a night or two before moving on. And who would be so foolish 
as to so fall in love with their inn that they would forget their home. This is not your home. We are aliens. We are strangers. We are ambassadors. We are foreigners in this world. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. His demons and hellish minions are doing everything they can to fire their fiery darts of temptation at you so you will fall. They want to see you destroyed by sin. And as a Christian in this world, as you grow in the Lord, as you're surrounded by trials and temptations and suffering and pain and death, it should make you long for heaven and the great reward which God has waiting for you. Do you know what that reward is? It isn't some sort of mystical concept. It's real. You need to follow the encouragement of Helen Lemel's hymn. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Is that you? If not, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Those who love this world are worldly, not heavenly. If you're a Christian, do you know what the word of God promises you? Do you know? You got to know this. Because if you're going to live for Christ in the world, if you're going to endure under persecution, if you're going to respond correctly when people mistreat you because you're living for Christ, you've got to know what your reward is because that is what helps you to hang on. Because, oh, you know, I may be giving up my house. I may be giving up my wife or my son or my daughter or I may be giving up my job or I may be giving up friendships. It's okay. It's all right. Because I know what my reward is. Well, what is your reward? Well, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, quoting Isaiah 64, 4, reminds us that it is things which eye has not seen or ear heard or entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Can you, can you understand that? Things which eye has not seen, no one's seen it. Ears not heard, no one's ever heard about it. Which is not entered into the heart of man, that is... All of us and all the people of the world cannot with their accumulated knowledge and imagination even conjure up what God has for every single believer. Every single believer. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. If you even try and compare heaven to anything, you're sinning. It's beyond it. And when he says momentary light afflictions, it's, it's humorous. Now you go to chapter 11, he talks about how he was beaten times without number, you know, suffered the 39 lashes, suffered shipwreck, went without hungry persecution, cold suffering, you know, all of these trials. Momentary light affliction. How could he say that? Was he self-deluded? No. He understood that when you have an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and you put all your earthly sufferings here, it's just nothing. These are nothing. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Quit complaining. 
You will be rewarded and you will be rewarded so much in such in a great and incredible way that you will never be in heaven going, oh, I'm so sorry I had to suffer for Jesus. Never. You will think, I wish I suffered more. I wish I stood up for Christ more. I wish I preached the gospel more. I wish I lost my job more times. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Did you hear that? God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Is that you? Your reward is great. In John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are the children of God and has not appeared as yet as what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Think about that. You will see Jesus just as he is. Does that blow you away? That just, I mean, I, you know, I don't care what task I have in heaven. I don't care how small it is. I don't care if I'm the last person. Seeing Jesus is going to be good. I just can't wait. I just, just, just kill me. <laughs> the book of Revelation has many promises with great reward waiting for all those who love the Lord. Listen to these few from the letters to the churches. Now just think about that and try and wrap your mind around this. Revelation 2, two seven. You will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you remember in the, in the garden when God created Adam and Eve, said you can eat of this tree of life, but don't eat of this one, and they ate of that one. And before they could even go over and eat of the tree of life, he had to send the, the cherub there with a the flaming sword to guard the tree so they could never eat of it. Well, the angel's going to be gone, the sword's going to be gone, and you're going to be able to approach that tree, and you're going to be able to eat the very one. In Revelation 2.11, you will escape the second death, which is the lake of fire. Because of your faith in Christ and what Christ did for you, because you have repented of your sins and received Jesus as your Savior, Jesus will wash you clean. And when you see the bulk of humanity and Satan and all of those demons being cast into the lake of fire, you will escape that. Even if heaven was sitting around on a blank cloud, it would be great compared to that. In Revelation 2.26, it says, You will have authority to rule with Christ over the nations. You yourself will be given the morning star, which is Christ himself. Christ will give himself to you. In Revelation 2.17, it says, You will be given Christ, the hidden manna, and be given a white stone, and on that stone will be a new name that no one knows but you and Jesus. And Jesus will call you by that name. Think about that. A little nickname for you. And no one else knows it. And Jesus says, Here, here's your nickname. I've written on a stone for you in case you forget. But we, we won't be forgetting in heaven. But just, you know, a little token there. This is your secret name. And when I call for you, this is going to be my name for you. Isn't that great? And he's going to do that to let you know that he knows you personally and he loves you personally. And he's going to give you that personal nickname. So you have that name given to you by Christ himself, the one who died for you. Listen to this. Revelation 3, 5, you will be clothed in white. Your name shall forever be written in the book of life. It will never be erased. And Jesus himself will confess your name before the Father. Think about that. 
come follow me. Yes, I am going to bring you before my father and I am going to confess you before my father. This is somebody I die for. This is somebody who lived for me and this is my brother. This is my sister in Christ. And since we are adopting them, let's make sure they have all the divine privileges which come from being one of yours. You get that. Revelation 3.12, you will be made a pillar, a faithful member in the temple of God. Christ will write on you a name, the name of God and the name of God's city, and you will be given a new name. So not only you have your other name, now you have your secret name, now you have a new name. And you have God's name and God's city written on you too, just so everybody knows. This is your barcode. New Jerusalem. Citizen of the new Jerusalem, child of God. See if you can mind, wrap your mind around this one. Revelation 3.21, Christ will grant you to sit with him on his throne, which is his father's throne. Amazing. God is going to say, sinner, saved by grace, you are going to sit on the very throne of God himself. And you will rule and reign with God on his throne everyone who knows Christ now you think about that Revelation 21 towards the end of the book promises what you will that you will dwell in a new Jerusalem you will be part of the church the bride of Christ you will dwell among and see God himself God will wipe away every tear from your eyes there will be no longer any death there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain he will let you drink from the spring of the water of life without cost and God will be your God and you yourself will be God's son or daughter now that's pretty good isn't it and I want you to know that is just a fraction of what the scriptures say about your heavenly reward. And you have to think about these things because if you don't, when you're being persecuted, you'll be tempted to think you're being gypped. That somehow losing your house or your possessions or a loved one is somehow the greatest catastrophe that ever could come upon you. No, you have a greater reward in heaven that is far beyond all comparison. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all, all who have loved his appearing. Is that you? Then that's what's coming. 1 Peter 1.4 says every true believer is destined to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved. It's waiting. And if that isn't motivation enough, look at the second motivation at the end of verse 35. And you will be sons of the Most High. See, whenever you respond properly to persecution, whenever you respond in grace and compassion and kindness and love towards those who persecute you, you prove yourself, you demonstrate yourself to be children of the Most High God. Do you want people to see you as godly? Do you want people to see you as a godly man, a godly woman, a godly high schooler, a godly junior higher? 
Well, then when you get persecuted for righteousness, respond like Christ is teaching us in this text. And people will look at you and go, now there is a child of the king of kings, the most high God. When you're being persecuted for righteousness, prove yourself to be a child of the most high God. Don't just say it. Live it. Remember that glory is coming. And as you stand before the Lord, you're never going to regret anything you gave up, anything you suffered for Christ's sake ever. You will not regret it. The scriptures make that abundantly clear. You will be sinless. You will be spotless. Jesus himself before all the angels and all the saints of all the ages will personally seek you out and take you before the father and say, this is my child. Amazing. And you didn't deserve it either. But if those nine commands are not enough and the three heart probing questions are not enough and if the two motivations are not enough, there's two more things. May your desire to be like God be enough. Look at the end of verse 35. Do you want to be like God? Do you want to be godly? Then love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Respond with grace to those who hate you. The text says, here's why. Because he, that is God, he himself, God the Father, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. This is what it means to be godly, to be godlike. If you want to be godly, then you want to be like God, whom the text says is kind and ungrateful to evil men. Well, we know this is true, right? Because here we are. We're ungrateful and evil men. And God has been kind to us by his grace. Right now, we should all be judged and all be burning in the lake of fire. And the fact that you're just sitting and breathing and you're not in hell is an expression of God's grace towards you, among many other things. The word kind means to be kind, gracious, pleasant, good, or compassionate. And God is this way towards all men, to some degree, and especially towards believers. And so, when evil men treat you poorly, hate you, scoff at you, curse you, whatever... And you respond in a God-honoring, loving way towards them. You will be proving that you yourself are, in fact, a son or daughter of the Most High God. Finally, the second way you must strive to be like God is verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Mercy is kindness and pity and compassion extended towards those who deserve judgment. A lot of people get mercy and grace confused because they are talked about in the same contexts in Scripture. But they're different, and yet they're inseparably linked. Grace is to receive undeserved, unmerited favor from God. Mercy is to not receive what you do deserve so you can receive grace. Mercy holds back your just condemnation, God's holy wrath, which would instantly consume you if it were not for the shield of his mercy. So mercy holds back God's wrath so that you can receive his grace. But in many texts, it talks about God giving us things by mercy, and it makes it sound like mercy and grace are synonymous. They are not. But you cannot receive God's grace without God's mercy holding back the just sentence you deserve. And so we receive good gifts by mercy because of grace. They are inseparably linked. And the whole point is, is since God is merciful towards evil men, 
And since we are to be godly, we are to be merciful towards evil men who treat us for doing what is right. If they're going to be godly, you need to be like God. He is kind. He is merciful to undeserving, ungrateful, evil men. And so you be the same way. So when you leave here today, remember there is no credit to you as being a child of God. There's no demonstration of grace. If you act towards those who persecute you in the same way that all worldly people act towards each other. Secondly, when you leave here, be motivated to respond to persecution properly by remembering you have this great reward that you are an alien here. You are a stranger here. You can't take any of your earthly stuff with you. You, so you're going to lose it all. All of your friends are going to die. All of your loved ones are going to die. All of your relationships are going to die because it's appointed for men to die once. And if they know the Lord, they'll be waiting for you. So you don't have to mourn excessively over their loss. Know that your reward in heaven is great and don't even try and comparing. That would be a sin. It's just greater than you can imagine. Far beyond all comparison. And third, as you leave here today, be like God. Be kind. Be merciful and compassionate towards ungrateful and evil men. Because God himself has been that way towards you. And you never deserved it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for what we were able to learn at the end of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. We are thankful that Jesus went to such great lengths to explain how we are to apply the golden rule in our life in so many different ways. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who has never repented of their sins, who has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who does not have a great reward waiting for them, who might be deluded into thinking they are saved but are not, I pray right now that you would show them their sin, help them to realize that Christ died for them on the cross, that he bore the sins of the world, that he was buried and rose again in the same day or the third day so that anybody who placed their faith in him might not perish but have everlasting life. I pray that you would grant them repentance and faith, that they would see their sin and desire to turn from it and to receive you so that you, by your grace, could change them and transform them into sons and daughters of the Most High God. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.